The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hello, I'm Peter Strachan, and this is Stockhead Wildcatter. Today, we are delighted to have Simon Hackett on the podcast, and Simon is an internet entrepreneur. Uh, he began uh, the Internode business in Adelaide in 1991, which he developed and built. And in 2011, he sold that to IINET. Uh, subsequent to that, he served on the board of IINET until that in turn was taken over by TPG. Uh, Simon has moved on and uh, is now an entrepreneur and an investor in a number of businesses. Uh, he was the largest shareholder in Redflow. Uh, it's a bit like the, um, the Remington story. He liked the product so much he bought the company. Um, not quite bought the company, but certainly spent a lot of uh, his own hard-earned investing in that business and putting together a battery management system, which uh, makes the uh, battery uh, so effective. So, Simon, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Peter. It's lovely to be here. Simon, um, we can touch on the Internet of Things as it really is so important to the, the power industry. But I wanted to draw on your expertise in uh, battery storage and building a uh, renewable energy network for power. And just to talk to you about how you see the current grid evolving. I know in Australia, we're great innovators and great adopters of this technology. Virtually every new house over here in Western Australia now has five to seven kilowatts of uh, PV on the roof. And uh, we're building utility scale wind and photovoltaics uh, at a great rate, but now we're getting to a point where the grid is starting to groan and, and, and grumble about that. I'm just wondering how you see the way forward. Yes, we certainly are entering that era. And the reason people are putting solar in, of course, is the economics are good um, in a variety of ways. They're, the economics are good directly for a, a consumer that, that puts solar on their roof. And we are indeed reaching points where at peak periods, you're getting incredibly too much renewables entering some of these grids, at least by, by some measures. And this, in my view, is where batteries start to become incredibly important because rather than the alternative, which is actually putting in mechanisms to wind the solar production down in peak periods, or indeed the wind production down in peak periods, it's obviously much smarter if you're capable of making it to stick it in a battery and then deliver it back into the grid at some later time. And indeed, I, I, I grimace at times when I, when I hear comments from some grid operators saying, oh, you know, we must, must stop putting more solar in because it's flooding our grids and we can't deal with it, where they should, in fact, be falling over themselves to get batteries in there, even potentially at their own expense, so that that problem, in fact, becomes a part of the solution. Yeah, absolutely. The storage. And I, I wonder whether, I mean, in the past, it, you know, people could just wander up and say, oh, I just want to put 100 megawatts of photovoltaic onto your grid. And they go, okay, you know. Mm. And um, now, don't, maybe the grid operators need to say, well, if you're going to put 800 megawatt hours of uh, weather dependent power into mm. our system, uh, before you, we give you the big tick to do that, you're going to have to show us that you've got 200 or 300 megawatt hour of storage to back that up. So at three o'clock in the morning, we can also rely on your system to give us some power. 
that, that's a way to look at it. The other way to look at it is the notion that, that absent of storage, you're, as I said, your only other alternative is going to be that your grid operator will actually tell you when you must turn the dial down. So you as the builder of a big solar farm or a big wind farm, it's in your interest to put a battery in there so that you do actually obey the directive to turn down your production, but you've put it somewhere useful so you can make pocket money at, at some other time of the day. It's a win-win game. Yeah, you've got free power coming off your system when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, so you might as well store it and sell it at a premium uh, later in the day. Precisely. Um, so, so, uh, And, of course, the technical thing, technically batteries have been around forever. The, the reason why this is a positive factor now is that their economics are reaching the point where they're, where they're starting to be useful. You know, it's never been a technology issue as such. Um, but what is a technology issue and what really is a almost a... Um, um, both a mental and a regulatory challenge is that that um, is that when you add a battery, you add choices about when you deliver that energy that didn't exist when you only had the solar there. That didn't exist when you only had the weather dependent stuff, right? Um, so when when you when you're running, it's an interesting way of putting it: weather dependent energy production. You've got two choices: you feed it into the grid or you don't, and it's a very simple life. But as soon as you've got energy storage you as the operator of that storage and the grid as the consumer of it now have both the, you know, the benefit and the curse of having to make a decision. Do I, do I push it back in just after sundown or do I hang on to it for a, you know, an exceptional event in which where, where I'm the one that keeps the grid going or a bit of both? Yes. Do you see the existing sort of legacy uh, grids and power generators operating in a mode which basically they're trying to defend uh, a business? You know, they're looking at the amount of sunk capital they've got in the ground and they're going, oh, you know, we've got this particular piece of kit and we need to defend that business and, and make sure that we get the most a return out of that existing business rather than shaking their head and saying, hang on, there's a whole new paradigm here. We need to change the way we operate. Yeah, there's always a bit of both. It is it is a truism that you tend to get the best return on investment out of that sort of kit the year before you shut it down, right? And 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 because you've stopped doing maintenance on it, so so yeah. you finally get that last kind of burst of great return. But I feel like the the, the operators, let's say, of, of coal power stations, you know, are actually very pragmatic about this. They know that that asset's wearing out and they're going to turn it off, and. The economics are generally not there to go build more of the same. So we're going to want to build more of something different. Um, I'm, and I'm, I'm exercised by the interesting notion that baseload power generators are considered to be that kind of holy thing that must always underpin the grid. And, and my view, and it's clearly not a unique one, is that we are heading towards a few decades where on the other end of that process, we will have a grid that may not have traditional baseload. It's an exercise in having, let's say, 200% renewables there. So that yeah. you, you've always got reserve in a different way than you currently have got reserve um, by having dispatchable energy that you have available actually in excess. And I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the notion that people like Simon Holmes, the court, keep reminding the rest of us that coal-fired power stations are actually amongst the least reliable sources of power generation out there because the things keep failing. And by mm. conversely, wind and solar, it's variable but it is not, in fact, unreliable. More accurately, it's not unpredictable. You know, the, the, you can use tomorrow's weather forecast to very accurately predict how much energy you're going to have and when you're going to have it from wind and solar tomorrow. So you can plan, you can plan for tomorrow today, and the sun is more reliable than the coal-fired power plant is. 
Yeah, and the uh, calculations that are done with NearMap now, uh, someone can just come along and they know exactly where you are on the planet and uh, they can see what buildings there are, what trees there are, and they can work out instantly how much sun your roof or your mm. particular panel is going to get. And they'll tell you, oh, this is how much power you're going to get over you know month by month during the year. Yeah, precisely. And I mean, I, I use weather forecasts in another in another realm in, in flying things. And one of the things I've noticed over the last decade, not surprisingly, is the accuracy of weather forecasts with respect to sun and wind just keeps getting better. So, yeah. so that underlying kind of predictor of tomorrow's available performance just keeps improving. So Simon, um, just turning to another one of your passions, which is uh, electric vehicles, and uh, the listener will be interested to know that I think you are probably the first person in Australia to own a Tesla motor vehicle, and uh, and now you have a fleet of them, basically a, cu- a couple of in in Adelaide and a couple at your farm in uh, Tasmania, and probably one I'm guessing in uh, Sonoma as well. So uh, you're passionate about electric vehicles. It, the the Tesla automobile has about 60 kilowatt hours of uh, stored power when the battery is full. What part do you you think that electric vehicles will play going forward in the overall grid? Right. Well, to to agree with you, yeah, I was actually Tesla's first customer in Australia multiple times. (laughs) I, I privately imported a Tesla Roadster, a Californian one, in 2009 after after meeting Elon at a conference and, and saying, so if I buy one, buy this and take it to Australia, is that okay? And he said, well, as long as you're okay with the servicing challenges, that's fine. <laughs> um, and that one's back in America. And yeah, I've, 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 all, of, all of our family's vehicles are Teslas, um, up to and including our, 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 our older kids who are driving. I mean, we stuck them in Model 3s actually for very pragmatic reasons, which is if you're going to be in a road accident, that's the safest car to be in one in. And yes, there's up to... In the case of our big Tesla, is up to hundred kilowatt hours in each one. Mm. Um, I mean, my view about the, the, the about the like the vehicle to grid notion, the notion that you might take some of that energy and throw it back into the grid if you happen to be plugged in when you need it. Um, I, I'm actually of the personal view that the inconvenience of that um, is going to be overridden by the the rapid rate at which batteries keep getting cheaper. In other words, it's going to be simpler to just say, no, why don't you stick fixed batteries in your house or your business in addition to the ones in the vehicles. You know, yeah. it, it, it's not a technical problem directly. It's a problem of, of trade-offs. You know, if, if, do you want to get up in the morning and discover that your car hasn't got enough range to get where you're going because it got used to keep your house going overnight? Yeah. Um, and if you're only going to do that by exception, then it's almost not useful enough. So yeah. not, a, not a technical thing again, an issue about the, 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 the challenge and, and the benefits of having choices for using that energy. Um, yeah, it's easy yeah, enough well, to do it, but do you want to? There needs to be some sort of system whereby, you know, the, the, your car battery will never get below, say, 40% charge. So you've, you've always got enough to get where you need to go. Yeah, and that's easy. Uh, that, in software terms, that's easy enough. The, the, it's yeah. easy enough technically. The challenge here in terms of mass adoption is that I think you don't want to face a consumer with having to make that decision themselves because they've got no experience in making it well. So the yeah. chances are that if you make them guess, they'll feel stressed by being made to guess or they'll get the guess wrong and then they'll be upset with the outcome. Um, yeah. So if you do that, you want to do it in some relatively automated manner where you can say to the consumer, you can do this as some of your battery and we'll manage it for you. And if you like it, that's fine. If you don't like it, don't do it. But you, you've got to avoid kind of decision paralysis here around, around making sure that your car fundamentally acts like a car and you can get where you want to go. 
Yeah. So the early adopters of battery technology are doing it because they want uh, security, they want potentially to be off-grid or if they're already off-grid, grid, they want a microgrid that supports them. Uh, but really, uh, most people just want lower power prices. So there's a business model that says if you're currently paying 28 cents a kilowatt hour for a power, someone comes along and says, you know what, uh, we're going to use your roof to put some photovoltaic on and we'll, we'll strap a battery to the back of your house and we'll sell you power for five cents a kilowatt hour for the next five years. But right. uh, on the understanding that you know, we're building a virtual power station and we can take some of your power, you know, when the power price spikes to $1,000 a kilowatt hour or $3,000 a kilowatt hour, we're going to take, you know, for 20 minutes, we're just going to take, you know, 20% of the power that's stored there and and, uh, we'll use that uh, to make uh, money. So we're going to have this virtual, we're going to have, you know, a megawatt or 1,000 megawatts of power out in the suburbs uh, in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of of, uh, individual battery systems. Yes, it's an interesting realm, that notion of the, the potential that the energy system on your roof may not be one that you own. And I've, I've, I've done some work at times with some collaborators in California who, who are in the realm of trying to make that industry exist. Um, the point being that there's a, there's a school of thought here and it's starting to develop that says, especially in commercial and industrial, you know, in sort of you know, big box retailer kind of scale, that you've got three things. You've got a roof on which you might get a company to install an energy system and, and space for a battery. You've got a consumer that wants to pay for power and you've got an investment community looking for a decent return on investment. And those three entities can be the same thing in the case of you do it yourself. But yeah. there's, no, there's nothing that actually stops those three entities, the installation community, the consumer of the power and the investment community being separate entities. And then the opportunity is, is the market making opportunity. Right, the moral equivalent of a stock market. You know, how do you get those people together efficiently? And by efficiently, I mean how do you get them together at scale? You know, to do hundreds of thousands of these things, not ones or twos of them. And it's a very yeah. doable thing. Well, we've got here uh, Gemma Green with her blockchain uh, idea, where you know people can actually bid for power. You know, you've got excess power. You say, I'll sell you, you know, ten kilowatt hours of power because I'm not home today or I'm going on holiday for three weeks and you, you can buy my power for three weeks, you know, that sort of thing. Right. And, and there's a couple of things that, that drop into my head about that. Um, that one in particular, it speaks to the more general challenge for the next few decades of the grid converting slowly but inexorably, I think, from a top-down tree structure, you shall buy power from the power station, yep. to a marketplace, to a bilateral marketplace, to a thing that looks much more like the internet. And it, that puts stress on the grid, but it also creates massive opportunity. And that's exactly what you're describing, the world where, in principle, why can't I have, in effect, the same capability to make money that a, that a power generator has? The only barrier to that really is, is regulatory habit, that you know, this is not the way that, 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 that God intended the grid to work. Well, okay, change it. Mm, and, and that's so there's a, that's that. the business model. Yeah. yeah. And the other the other thing I'd say about the reason people put batteries in, as you, you alluded to, so there's a couple of reasons why batteries tend to turn up in, in homes or grids. Um, historically, batteries have been there as a way to protect you if the power fails, so to produce a, an uninterruptible power supply, a way to make sure that if the grid fails, the lights stay on from the battery. And in that sense, it's the battery pretending to be a generator, you know, just like a gen set, it comes on when you need it. Yep. The modern world, as batteries get cheaper, 
we start to have this this really cool opportunity to time shift your solar or wind to when you need it. And that's an economic decision, not a not a reliability decision. You know, this is this is when you take your surplus power and instead of exporting it during the day, you use it to keep your house going at night. And you have this this very warm, fuzzy feeling of being connected to the grid, but using, you know, you know, if the weather's good, using none of it over the course of a week or so. And what's interesting to me is that we're coming full circle. The, the, the original business case for keeping the lights on, which used to only appeal to people like data centers or, or offices, this is now starting to matter for homes in places like California, where they've had enormous issues lately with the power company turning the grid off proactively to make sure that it does not cause more more bushfires. Bushfires, yeah. Very well-heeled people in very well-heeled bits of California that have had their power turned off for multi-day periods proactively and on a precautionary basis. That's creating the business case for those people to buy a battery just so that their lifestyle is not interrupted. Yeah, well, they can go back and buy a a generator, but that's a bit of a pain in the neck. (laughs) Right, they can buy a generator as one choice, and indeed there's a lot of generators sold, but, but basically the, the opportunity is there for batteries to replace generators in that role as well. And, of course, the mm. nice thing about a battery is that you can allocate a percentage of it to one role, keep the lights on if the power fails, and the other, another percentage to the role of saving you some money. And then if you are the big battery, the big Tesla battery in Hornsdale, the Hornsdale Power Reserve in South Australia, you can allocate another chunk of the battery to what are called grid support services, to yep. actually keeping the whole grid going when the grid itself is under stress. And that's really interesting because you reverse the whole thing. Now the battery is saving the grid rather than rather than making up for its absence. Yeah, it's a instantaneous, very short-term bolt of power uh, to keep the voltage uh, up to you know the whole system stable. Yes, and it turns out that, that grid operators pay danger money for that service, mm. which is why it's such a good return on investment because... If the grid keeps going, they make income. If the grid collapses, the grid operator makes no money for that hour, and that is a far higher cost to them than, than avoiding that cost by keeping the grid going. So, yeah, it's the moral equivalent of it's, it's not keeping the grid on. It's putting the finger in the dike so it doesn't collapse. Yeah, I know in the early days of Redflow, well, the business model, you know, before your uh, arrival there, the business model was to make sort of half a megawatt um, uh, plants that sat in uh, shipping containers on the edges of a you know widespread grid. Mm. So here in Western Australia, uh, you get down at Margaret River, it always used to be power failures uh, because uh, the population goes from twelve thousand to thirty-five thousand in the summer, and uh, you know the, there was always uh, power failures because of the instability of the grid. But if you had on-site um, power that you could instantly turn on and that was the the early model before it was decided to make sort of uh, consumer friendly household type batteries so you could store 10 kilowatts of, of power yeah it's an interesting model isn't it and i think there's a lot of life in that notion of though of putting uh, battery arrays at the end of long thin power lines yeah the, the the subtle thing to think about the way to think about the benefit of that battery is that it allows you to con- to to convert the usage on that power line from being a very peaky usage you know, for having having bursts during you know bursts of high demand it lets you instead have that power line just sufficient for the 24 hour average power requirement of that community not for its peak and this is yeah. something which is exactly the same as the internet you provision an internet connection for peak usage if you put 
the, what you, we used to deploy things called web caches at the edge of the network, which would allow you to, to, to put thinner internet distribution links in because, again, you only had to deal with the average over 24 hours, not the instantaneous peak. And the subtle thing here is that why you shift between one and the other is purely economics. Are the cables cheaper or not compared to the batteries? See what I mean? And yeah, we're reaching yeah, a point now where the batteries are getting cheap enough that mm. your energy company should, by rights, put a battery at the end of that long wire because it should be cheaper for them than doubling up the size of that power feed to keep up with the, with the march of the air conditioner. Yeah, we've spoken about this before with uh, Horizon Power here. They have, you know, long uh, poles and wires going out to a community where there might be, you know, five or six houses. Uh, they get $15,000 a year of income from those customers and it costs them $2 million a year to keep the poles and wire. So they're saying, you know what, we're just going to put uh, photovoltaic and some batteries out there and a backup generator and it's going to be much cheaper for us than, than maintaining that grid, that extensive grid. Yes, precisely. And, and this is, in fact, the system working right. It's, it's, it's a correct market mechanism or market response to the economics. That, 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 and this, this is, it's good, right? It's good when a power company actually finds the most rational economic way to solve the problem. And yeah. more and more, that happens to be the use of photovoltaics and batteries because they are, in fact, rationally economic for doing that. And the nice thing for the consumer is that nothing changes. They still just get a power bill from the power company. It's the microcosm version of what I was talking about before in large scale with, you know, with, with, with installation community, consumer and investor. Yeah. So, Simon, in the short time we have left, um, thank you once again for coming uh, to us. Uh, I note uh, recently the Hackett Foundation, which is your uh, – Good Works or charitable organisation. You were very busy during the bushfires in uh, Kangaroo Island, flying veterinary surgeons out to deal with the uh, wildlife emergency there. I just want to congratulate you on that. And uh, and I think you know the foundation. Uh, is there is there anything else you'd like to say about the foundation? It seems to be doing some fantastic work. Uh, yes, it's 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 our little our little foundation, and we we tend to we tend to direct investment from it to places that we think are going to do some good. We're not we're not soliciting. Um, things to do we we identify things that make sense to us and get on with them and that one's an example of it that yeah in kangaroo island as you alluded to we um i was personally flying the vets back and forth as a bit of kind of personal um, contribution to the effort of those vets but we the foundation support the organization who the vets were working for uh, which good. is an organization called savem sa veterinary emergency management and there's an equivalent one in in other states um, and they're they're the people that send the vets in to do the hard work in the first few weeks of those of those disasters the other thing we did support that's of technical interest is we're supporting an entity called Airborne Research Australia in conducting overflights of Kangaroo Island with high high resolution lidars to scan the terrain post bushfire and understand which bits of that area survived and which bits didn't. And we're intending uh-huh. to go do reflights to monitor the recovery on the island. And what we're doing with that data is we're making it public. So that anyone that's got a use for that knowledge, you know, be they a vet or be they a farmer or be they someone deciding which tourism areas still work, can use the stuff to get a better recovery rate out of the island and the island's economics in general. Fantastic. So, Simon, thanks very much. I, I'm sure we could uh, go on for about another two or three hours, but perhaps at another time. So thank you today for coming on to the Wildcatter podcast. Uh, we're not talking about traditional energy sources. We're talking about the new and cleaner energy sources. And uh, I'm sure, uh, you know, it's an evolving 
area with evolving science and uh, we're moving very, very swiftly in Australia. We are indeed, Peter, and it's been a pleasure.